tonight Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win gold But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go Talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back on the second weekend in July The same weekend responsible for 18 years ago Bringing us the first introduction to Elle Woods and Legally Blonde This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar doing another Tarantino episode Reese Witherspoon Quentin Tarantino, they go hand in hand. That's why I thought that Legally was Legally Blonde proper. and Inglorious Bastards, same kind <laughs> of picture, for sure. I'm your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also Mike. Mike, like you said, we're doing Inglorious Bastards today. Yeah, you're weird. I just uh-huh. want to get that out of the way. Fair. And this was a movie I think we both loved when it came out back yes. in 2009. I was eager to re-watch this. I think some things exceeded my expectations. Other things kind of make me pause and we're going to really dive into it and I can't wait to explain all of that cryptic nonsense I just said. <laughs> it is a whole lot of movie, that is for sure, like we both said in the uh, pre-production here. And we'll run down, if you've not joined us yet, for a Tarantino rewatch series intro. Where the hell have you been? But since you're here now, let's talk about how these episodes go. It's two parts, just like most of our review episodes are. We have a non-spoiler section and a spoiler-filled section with a spoiler warning in the middle from an up-and-coming theater group performing a scene interpretation from one of the movies that we are covering. Uh, we have eight new segments that differentiate the Tarantino episode Episodes from like let's say an Oscar Sprint profile or a Pixar episode. We talk about a year in review. We talk about our first time watching these movies, the stories that we remember and we recall from our first watches of these. What makes Quentin dance when we talk about all the different music because he is a, a connoisseur of the jukebox in all these films, especially on set as well. We talk about the homages that Tarantino alluded to in these movies and then we have like I said for that spoiler warning, an up and coming hot new theater group that's sure to be signed any day now will perform any the spoiler day. warning scene. We talk about trademark Tarantino on the back end, the second half, the spoiler-filled section. That's how we start those. That's where we talk about our best scenes, what Tarantino's most known for, what he should be most known for, what kind of gets us, and maybe some underrated stuff as well, as well as we have some screenwriting advice from the man himself using his quotes, and we finish off with some Easter eggs and connections into the Tarantino verse. But like I said, the first half of this review, as it always is, is non-spoiler, so don't worry if you've not seen this movie or if it's been a while, you're not going to have it ruined for you here yet. You will hear the spoiler warning. Let's start with the non-spoiler section. Michael, run down the cast and crew of Inglorious Bastards. Yes, Quentin Tarantino started writing Inglorious Bastards back in 1998. Sure this did. is going to be his major epic, what he hoped to be his masterpiece. He put it on the side going into Kill Bill because it was just too huge. Mm-hmm. He thought he was going to climb Everest, and eventually he climbed another Everest, which is Kill Bill, mm-hmm. and how he puts it, and he decided on uh, Death Proof, the grindhouse picture, as kind of a palate cleanser, I'm paraphrasing <laughs> there, as something in between, and then he decided to climb Everest again, mm-hmm. and everybody seemed to be in favor of it, and he turned it around really quick. He took that massive novel, yeah. and he made it into a very clean script. Had to get it out by can. <laughs> yes, he did. Alright, so what did he do between Death Proof and Inglorious Bastards? Well, he played Pringle and Sukiyaki Western Django. Can I say I want Pringles or is that racist? 
Pringo. Pringles. Right. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's a different. No, that's just dad joking. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, the Takahashi Miike film, Mike. I took me like five times to say his glorious name correctly. Teriyaki Chicken. That is racist. Okay. Now, now you're racist. <laughs> and he was an uncredited newsreader in George A. Romero's diary of the dead. So that was his acting profile between in those two years. I don't know if I've actually seen that one. It's okay. Right. I've seen all the Romeros. I did I a thought big I did, binge. but apparently not. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was the executive producer Quentin was and presenter of Hellride, a motorcycle movie written, directed and starring Larry Bishop, who was Bud's boss at the club in Kill Bill Volume 2 there. Okay. <laughs> Quentin and Brad Pitt wanted to collaborate years ago, but the agents were against it because Brad at that time had projects stacked up, and as Quentin tells it, Brad's agent wouldn't allow their meeting because, quote, you're going to fall in love together, all right, and then Brad's not going to be able to do it, all right, and we can't just allow this meeting to happen, okay, okay? That sounds like a fishy story, first of all. Like, we can't make because you'll get along too well. You'll, you'll fall in love. definitely want to work with one another. Right. Okay. <laughs> anyway, years later, Quentin started thinking about Brad Pitt, as most of us do, straight or gay or Actually, as- asexual I still or do. whatever. Uh, and he was writing Inglorious Bastards at this time. So about halfway through that first draft, Quentin was basically writing the part for Brad Pitt. And he was starting to get nervous because he felt like if he couldn't give it to Brad Pitt, what the hell was he going to do? Luckily, they finally do have that big meeting, and Pitt plays Lieutenant Aldo Rain in Inglorious Bastards. Grazie. Yeah, we have a brilliant French actress turned director now. She did a great job, I thought, with last year's Galveston, the Ben Foster, Ellie Fanning, Nick Pizzolatto scripted film. Highs and lows for that movie, but Melanie Laurent plays Shoshana in this one, hopefully learning a lot. I think learning a lot, especially with the way she did violence in that in that movie she directed. She is in a great clip with Tarantino on the red carpet of the Cannes Film Festival, and they're both just dancing like there's no tomorrow. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Over a 10-day period, she learned how to project old-school film. Yeah, this and is kind of cool. She had a final test for Tarantino with one of his infamous midnight to 3 a.m. screenings where she basically had to do six changes for a host of trailers and short films and cartoons. For something that really, in the movie, took up three seconds, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, her act, her character actually changing film is not a giant part of this movie. She could have been told where to put her hands. Right. But no, naturally she was able to do it, and she had a, she gained a lot of confidence from that 10 days, yeah, I She guess. did that apparently at a theater in L.A. that Tarantino owns, so that's right. pretty cool. Jackie Ito plays her co-worker in a theater, Marcel. But the big story, of course, revolves around Hans Landa. Tarantino said he wrote himself into a bit of a corner with this character because Landa was a linguistic genius, and he needed a multilingual actor who had the same capabilities. He wasn't finding that actor deep into the casting process. Tarantino had put his own money into the production at this point, and they were set to get the rest of the financing a week from when Tarantino set this deadline for himself and the production. This was a deadline where he basically said, if I can't find my Hans Landa, I'm just going to publish this script, and I'm not going to go through with it. I can't make the movie. I'm not going to compromise on this. Michael Fassbender auditioned for the part. He's bilingual, but he didn't have the Italian, I would guess. He didn't have the French yeah. ready at his disposal. He had the, the English and the German. But Quentin was basically like, I can't do this movie without a Hans Landa. 
during the audition after the producers like all right the next four days are all about londa they brought guys in i don't know on which day it was but during the audition when christoph waltz came into the casting room he read a few scenes and tarantino apparently whispered to lawrence bender we're making a movie <laughs> all right <laughs> so that's the uh, the legend from this movie. Uh, so you could, you could say it also not only saved Tarantino's movie. Tarantino's gone on record saying that Christoph Waltz gave him his movie. It's a famous quote, but you could also argue that this kind of, I mean, this was Christoph Waltz being introduced to American audiences as a guy and kicking off his American film career. Yeah, Christoph Waltz says it gave Tarantino gave him his vocation back. Yeah. So it was a, a mutual love fest throughout these interviews. No no question about it. Eli Roth is Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. Roth, of course, is the director of the Hostel movies. He also acted in Death Proof. He is a buddy of Tarantino there. Michael Fassbender, as I mentioned, is Lieutenant Archie Hickox. Fassbender had a small role in 300 for Zack Snyder. He was also the star of two indie film darlings, Hunger for Steve McQueen and Fish Tank for Andrea Arnold. Hell of an indie film resume right there. He would then star in Centurion after this. And finally, he got the Magneto part that catapulted him into movie stardom a couple years later. Yep. Diane Kruger is Bridget von Hammersmark. She was great in 2017's In the Fade. I'd always been a huge fan of her acting career. She was in The Bridge on FX, etc., etc. Yeah, she's awesome. From Rush and Captain America Civil War, Daniel Bruhl is Friedrich Zoller, who is a great bilingual, multilingual actor. Yeah, I was well. going to say, apparently he's a bilingual one as well, as he did the Spanish dubbing for the Spanish version of this film. Yeah, it was his voice. And Goodbye Lenin was, a, a, I think, a foreign film he made to start his career, really uh, get himself onto the, everybody's uh, radars there. Till Schweiger, Gideon Burkhard, B.J. Novak, and Omar Doom play the rest of the bastards, while Denny Menoche plays... Perrier Lapadit, I suck at French. <laughs> Sylvester Goth is Joseph Goebbels. Rod Taylor came out of retirement to play Winston Churchill. Martin Woodke is Hitler. And, of course, Mike Myers is General Ed Fenech. Fenech? Fenech. I don't know. <laughs> Close enough on all counts. It's Fenech, I think it was pronounced in the film. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> You did everything but there, but good job by you. We'll talk about some specs for Inglorious Bastards here. Written and directed, of course, as all these movies are, by Quentin Tarantino. The film Ooh. debuted at Cannes, May twentieth, two thousand nine. Exactly two months later, it went wide in Germany. Your rube. Was, <laughs> I'm sorry. Where it was highly censored, obviously the Nazi propaganda stuff could not be seen in German film, and it went wide in the U.S. on the twenty first of August here stateside. One hundred and fifty three minute runtime and an R rating, and it was again produced by Lawrence Bender. Sally Menke again did the editing, but sadly. This would be Mankey's second-to-last film ever worked on and the final collaboration she would have with Tarantino, leaving mm. behind a legacy as one of the most inventive and plain best editors in the history of cinema. Yes, sir. Big hole in the industry after her loss, way too, gone way too soon. It was fun to watch all the bloopers because they did this big shtick where they're like, Hey, Sally. Hi, Sally. Like, whenever they screwed something up, it was like, Oh, hey, Sally. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> Together at the time, right? That, that was, was really fun. Cute. So in the last episode, we talked about how Tarantino has kind of deliberately taken on the role of making the best American version of whatever long overlooked or forgotten subgenre he 
damn well chose to. Yeah. Uh, as he's, as such, he always fancied his take on a World War II movie to be a guys on a mission film, a la The Dirty Dozen. That's one of the couple of movies he always references when he's talking about his trial with making Inglorious Bastards. No here. question. The Bastards movie, and specifically Tarantino's making a World War II movie, though, had been something fabled in Tarantino's professional life for some time. Ever since Kill Bill Volume 2 was released, it was long expected that Quentin's next film would be his much-anticipated take on the war. After all, it had been well-known in the industry that he had been working on a script for it since the late 90s, so when Tarantino announced sometime after Volume 2 debuted that his next film would not be his anticipated World War II film, but rather it would be an old-style kung fu movie shot completely in Mandarin, it raised more than a few eyebrows in the industry. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, apparently the script for Glorious Bastards would weigh so heavy on Tarantino's mind and would become such a labor of stop-start screenwriting for him that he may have, in fact, lost it a little bit, as well all writers tend to do. He would say in various interviews with regards to writing Glorious Bastards that he was putting it off for various reasons until he finally finished it. Such as, oh, I, too many directors are putting out World War II movies, or uh, my World War II movie isn't going to be a movie, it's going to be two movies, or, uh, well, never mind, I mean, it's going to be a documentary series, or uh, I can't work on the script now, I've got to direct this CSI episode, this Jimmy Kimmel Live episode, or I'm mentoring American Idol this week. All things he did in the interim. He had a humongous script... And I think he was afraid of coming up with a clean story out of that script. Yes. It was it was a very daunting task. Yeah, he, and he did it to himself because he wrote like volumes apparently. Well, when you you know ostracize yourself from society and throw yourself into screenwriting and lose human contact, you tend to go a little far. So Mel Gibson does Apocalypto, and now every theater, every auteur is just like, oh, I got to do my Mandarin movie, right? My, you know, movie in old Latin. Uh, he he said apparently he has part of that script written, uh, the Mandarin movie, but I. I I don't know. In fact, as Kristen O'Handel said in her piece on the film Inglorious Bastards in the New York Times, though Tarantino started writing the script in the 90s, like Mike told you, it wouldn't be until around January of 2008 that the writer-director tried to focus all his efforts into completing the script and deciding once and for all if it had a movie to be made out of it or not. And lucky for all of us, obviously, Quentin figured it out. Bastards would turn out to be Tarantino's biggest financial and academy hit to date. The film, which was made for a $70 million budget for the Weinstein Company, ended up bringing in $321 million worldwide and would account for both Tarantino's highest-grossing film worldwide and domestically, of which it was $120 million gross. Yeah, until Django Unchained. Yes, uh, at the time. And so at this point, and then he would outdo himself. I would imagine he's probably going to outdo himself again with all the hype this one's getting, you would think. I mean, 120 for a Tarantino film, at least just domestically. A Tarantino Hollywood history of Hollywood, Charles Manson family film, right. you would think could break $120 million. I think it's going to yeah. beat it domestically. Is it going to beat it internationally, though? Because now you're not focusing on European cinema right. and all. Maybe he'll do the homages just the same. I'm thinking it may not make as much as we're all hoping internationally. Which could be a good thing for the Academy because they don't like big blockbusters. Anyway. It's a whole mess here. It's weird. Yeah. The Academy is weird. <laughs> and they might be involved in the allegory of this film. More <laughs> on that later. And that's alluded to this movie found fans within the Academy as well. After a string of four straight Tarantino movies, which amassed a total of one Oscar nomination amongst all of them, Tarantino would find Bastard setting the record for most Academy nominations for one of his films ever, beating out the seven nominations Pulp Fiction earned by one, giving Inglorious 
Eight nominations total on the night, though only Christoph Waltz would lead the stage with Oscars gold of those eight noms as sound editing, sound mixing, film editing, cinematography, original screenplay, director, and best picture would all go to other films. Plot premise reads, in Nazi-occupied France during World War II, a plan to assassinate Nazi leaders by a group of Jewish U.S. soldiers coincides with a theater owner's vengeful plans for the same. Mike, my first watch story is something I told in an episode we did on top five most anticipated movie events going into Endgame there. Mm -hmm. I do want to, you know, reference back to that. Go listen to that episode. That was a lot of fun for us. But basically, at the end of this movie, one of the friends in my huge group of people that went to this on opening night, she passed out at the end of the movie walking out of there. And the (laughs) emergency personnel had to... You know, revive her right there. Set and the theater on fire. We're walking. I went to the bathroom immediately <laughs> after. And then I, when I walked back, like. Sh- I, what's well, going on? What's going on, guys? It's crazy. Why is she on a stretcher? Uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, so I guess, unfortunately, as good as the movie was, it was outweighed by the mayhem that followed in your personal life after. It was like fitting. Like I, I went in researching all the Pulp Fiction stories about how all these people would have heart attacks or pass out or right. whatever. And then Kill Bill was such a crazy experience. that I lived a crazy experience <laughs> at a Tarantino screening. It was nuts. And I remember my friend, our friend really, yep. and his girlfriend Lindsay, they're now married. The the <laughs> She's getting questioned. Are you pregnant, honey? <laughs> and I remember Tim's face and he was just like, I sure hope not. Oh, no. Because <laughs> they're like 22 or whatever at the time. 21. Yeah. My God. Yeah, this was either still in or just out of college for, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tim being Tim being one of the roommates of your brother and mine there, senior year at UConn. My watch was a lot less exciting. <laughs> I watched this. I remember down in my basement on Netflix Years after it come out, I didn't see it in theaters. But you passed out. Yeah, naturally, yeah. The but you do that. Like, you yeah. do that. That's just often. a blood sugar thing, though. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have a big story. I I feel bad about this one. I don't really have a huge you know, what if or what happened or anything exciting that happened in my life. It was boring. It was me, and I remember watching it and being like, "That was a good movie." <laughs> Did you yell at the screen throughout the movie? No, but I remember. Having a new appreciation for foreign films, which is odd because this isn't a foreign film, obviously, even though it's presented as one, being at that point, having taken classes in different film categories in college and and sitting through German film and having to read all the subtitles there, it kind of wore on me and it kind of reignited my passion for for being able to sit through a movie with subtitles or primarily subtitles. I wonder now, if we flash back to 2006, Mike 1, did you have a grudge against subtitles for like three or four years, six years, ten years? Probably. Because you, you form grudges for things. Yeah, I hold on pretty tight. You hold on for a long Wilson time. Wilson Phillips takes... made that song about me. <laughs> I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did. All right, let's dive into some production values here. I'll start with cinematography. It is great. It's not good. It is great. It's fantastic. Deciding to hold off on close-ups, and I know this is somewhat editing, but deciding to hold off on close-ups until the revelations of certain scenes, yeah. that's a, a major feather in his cap right from the first sequence there. The introduction to Eli Roth's character, I'm not talking about the introduction to the Bastards, the Dirty Dozen scene, the follow-up scene when they're out in Nazi-occupied France, 
my God, the cinematography there is beautiful, and it's so grim, and it leads to so much feelings of dread. Yeah. Like we've said, it free really freaks me out. And then the action, just the way he way he does that. But my favorite thing, Mike, is the establishing shots. When you watch the making of this movie, yep. those cranes, all those humongous apparatuses are dipping here, dipping there. You see this huge machinery, yeah. and there's just like a gaffer who's steadying the the arm of these cranes. It's it's unreal to see the lengths that he goes to get these shots. It, it's incredible. His cinematography has been wildly underrated. I think, and that's one of the biggest things I've learned from this rewatch series we've done and there's that scene where Aldo is pressuring the Nazi soldier when the Nazi soldier finally gives in is willing to tell Aldo where the yeah. Nazis are parked out and there's just it's it's Brad Pitt and this other actor and the interpreter in the middle leaning over a map and the camera just goes from Aldo to the soldier to the interpreter to the map to Aldo to the interpreter to the soldier to the map and it's just moving all around Sally Mankey man it's awesome it's so so good well, that's a good transition because editing is a highlight and it's worthy Big of an time. Oscar nomination. The violence explodes in Tarantino movies, but this is faster cut violence scenes than I've ever seen in one of these movies. And we just watched Kill Bill, which was a series of quick cuts in many scenes. But you have the gun violence being different than the sword violence, and Tarantino chooses to just like it's it's just like a literal explosion of fireworks almost fireworks the editing technique i don't know how she does it she's she's amazing and the, the visual effects in that regard uh, coincide with it greg nicotero doing all those makeup effects he would go on to do the walking dead a lot of practical effects in this one were used too especially like stand-ins and dummies and stuff but there was also speaking of the editing and Mankey, she is relied on a couple times specifically to just the editing and the way things are presented, we have to have like a quick two-minute montage to explain away a lot of objections as to how we get to yeah. where we get, especially to go into Act 3 of this movie. And it's so effectively done and so efficiently done. It's just amazing. I I feel sad knowing, seeing what she's done and seeing her True. expertise on film and knowing she's not with us anymore. One of the best. Costume design, production design, it's historical, but it, there's also that Tarantino panache going on. The way he lit this film is incredible. Yeah. You have scenes that are violent, and there's spotlights on certain parts of the violence. But there's also like all these little things in the sets that are so cool. Like you got the theater, and there's all the references on the marquee, and everything about right. her theater is incredible. And then you have the the farm and there's milk and you have the restaurant and there's the strudel yeah and there's a lot of food goods in this movie a lot of food which i was thrilled with <laughs> i'm <Just> sure thrilled <laughs> I, I get all my anger out on midsummer right now because there was not <laughs> enough food goods in midsummer we recently reviewed that which was a lot of fun except for this fact where i was enraged by the lack of food goods i want strudel it's the worst criticism you've ever had in this podcast i don't care i stick by it i will die on that hill uh, are we ready to get into the sound stuff yeah, Mike here? i love the score I, I know it's taken from a million things and i'm about to go into so you and i was surprised to read this when i was reading off your uh, your notes here before we got started you have a lot more music and songs listed than i recognized in this movie i only i only recognized like three or four a lot of them were an, an eo morricone film uh 
songs, yep. like he, Quentin's used throughout all of his films, but I didn't really notice all that much except for the one in particular. So we're going to ask what made Quentin dance here, and I don't know. I'm going to just start out by saying that. I, th- I think I have one hypothesis, but we'll build up to it. Yeah. There are eight tracks from Ennio Morricone, including the opening of 1960s, The Alamo, you have The Green Leaves of Summer, The Verdict and Surrender, those are two songs by him from The Big Gun Down. You have Un Amico from Revolver, 1973. And you have 1974's Alan Sanfan. Alan Sanfan. Alan Sanfan. <laughs> Rabia e Tarantella. Tarantella. It sounds like Tarantino, I yeah. should say. But you also have theme songs, Mike, from all these 1960s and 1970s movies. Yeah, you this is a lot of the stuff that went over my head. The theme from 1973's Burt Reynolds' White Lightning. You have the theme from One Silver Dollar, a spaghetti western in 65. You actually have a Zara Leander song, who is the basics for the Von Hammerschmark character by many accounts. You have a German song by Lillian Harvey, who's a famous actress mentioned in this film that Joseph Goebbels hates. You have The Man with the Big Sombrero, which is from 1943's High Diddle Diddle. Have you ever seen High Diddle Diddle, Michael? Cat in the Fiddle? Is that the one where the dish runs away with the spoon? I think so. We're going to say that. That's a Mike, Mike, and Oscar take right there. We have the theme from Dark of the Sun, theme from Cat People, and we have the theme from 1970s Kelly's Heroes entitled Tiger Tank. And finally, Mike, we have the theme from Cat People, entitled Cat People, by David Bowie. This is the Natasha Kinski 1982 film that I only made it through like 30 minutes of. Couldn't get through it. But You're better I'm, man than I. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the one that made Quentin dance. The, the David Bowie song. I don't think there's any question it was the Bowie one. Has and that's be. That's the one that's kind of, at least to me anyway, in watching this, was most recognizable and most in your face. And he lets it play for a good while, too. Yes. As it's just it, it's showing the setting and the staging of, of the big finale, what the hap- was going to happen in the big finale. One of my favorite sequence. Getting dressed sequences ever. I mean, that <laughs> and, like, Phantom Thread, right? I mean, yes. Shoshana getting dressed. And that's where I, I thought Mickey was at her best, too. That scene yeah. where the, the montage is played over it. Reviewing the performances, Mike, I I wanted to say this in casting, but I left it till here. Super admirable and inspired by Quentin to want French-speaking roles to be played by French actors, essentially. At the very least, French-speaking actors. The same with the German roles, the same with the British and American parts. He wanted that authenticity, and you wouldn't have found Christoph Waltz. Without it, you wouldn't have found all these actors that have broken out in international cinema point. since then without that imperative that he set for himself at the beginning of this. This is not something always done. You have characters learning languages or learning their lines in other languages. Hell, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he has American actresses learning Italian and whatnot. We'll get into that later on. Mm-hmm. He doesn't always make this a prerequisite, no. but here he did, and I think it really paid off because he discovered some awesome awesome actors who have gone on to make great movies one after the next. I wonder how we would feel about it if he actually went through with his with his playing the role of Pai Mei as opposed to casting Gordon Liu in the role of Pai Mei because, yes, right now it's safe to say, okay, well, he, he, he does care about having authentic actors play those roles and speak those roles. But we know for a fact that's not the case. Like, that's not his first impression on previous films. Not his first priority to do so. So I just wonder how his history would have viewed him a little differently in that regard. So I think you'll be the least surprised to learn that when he started writing Inglourious Bastards, he was going to play the part of Aldo Rain, star of the movie. Brad, of course. Brad Pitt. I'm, I'm amazed it wasn't Hitler. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right? Christoph Waltz uh, drinking the milk, eating the strudel. Great performance. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that jumps out to me. Totally Oscar-worthy. Totally reward-worthy. <laughs> no, he's phenomenal in this. I yeah. mean, he's it's like mind games. He's a detective. He's Sherlock Holmes. He's, I will he's say, I, I know you're making jokes about the food, but like the most striking image from this movie to me, after having not seen it in a couple of years, is the close-up of that whipped cream. It's like, it's it's the purest white, and it's just so out of nowhere in the middle of this dialogue and this, like, chess match conversation going on between Landa and Shoshana, and it's just, then we get this close-up of this, like, beautiful, fluffy white cream in this white bowl with a silver spoon, and I was like, I wasn't hungry, I was just like, that that is white. <laughs> Melanie Laurent could have her own, you know, travel show where she eats food. Hans Landa, absolutely not. He just is very businesslike with it, even though he, he gives a, he he's, drinks the milk with relish. He's a disgusting eater. He yeah. uses food when he's most manipulative, and when he knows he has, he's like mm. a cat playing with a mouse. Yeah. It's over food. It's either over a glass of milk or it's over strudel. You know, like it's she amazing. Takes, she takes one bite, and the bliss that hits her face, <laughs> you know. Involuntary bliss that hits her face right. is incredible to watch, and then he's just shoveling into his mouth. He's gross. And while he's interrogating, <laughs> gross eater. But look, this ensemble is extraordinary. La Padite, Wilhelm, Goebbels, Hitler, Churchill. Yeah, there are some great performances, and there, there's no wonder that this movie won best ensemble, or at, as it was called in that, that time, best cast at the Screen Actors Guild. Awards. No wonder. So, what was this movie's biggest sin? Being released in the same year as Avatar. The Hurt Locker. It lost six times oh, it was to the Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker. Okay. It lost once to Avatar. We'll get in that in a minute. You got any more on the performances, Mike? No, I think you hit it all. I mean, everybody that... Tarantino has a knack for finding people, even in the smallest roles, who are capable and do their job. And this is, mm-hmm. what, the sixth film in a row, seventh film in a row, where it doesn't matter if you're if you're something as, as little as, like, Hitler's bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Standing outside his opera booth in the in Act Three here, you gotta you have a role to fill, and he makes sure that he hires people that are capable of filling it. Unless you're Eli Roth pulling off a Boston accent. One of the craziest things I learned about this production is that he did set himself this very difficult deadline leading into Cannes and finishing oh, yeah. this before sure. Cannes because he didn't want to get complacent as a director as as a producer he didn't want his actors to get complacent and to have 5 days to shoot a scene when it was scripted or when it was programmed in to be a 3 day shoot because if you always say what he called manana manana you always go manana manana all right there always be another manana he didn't allow himself that flexibility he kept himself on schedule and under budget and he because he wanted the energy there he needed the movie magic to be able to happen. He wanted them with those deadlines, with the sense of urgency. It's really reminiscent of how he wrote this film. I mean, he started writing it in 2008. This is his career masterpiece that he filmed in 2009. Yeah. After writing a bloated version in 1998. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. And I think that's a good segue into the non-spoiler script thoughts here because I'm going to go into the homages. And I think he does... A little less than, or at least I found references to a little less than in previous films, but let's just talk about it. The Universal logo comes from the mid-60s. and That's an old Tarantino trope, too, starting with something from like that retro-chic-type looking thing. And it filters into my next reference because the opening sequence ep- echoes the opening of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the Sergio Leone spaghetti western 
the Universal logo most known for him from those spaghetti westerns. Sure. And when he was asked who is the director that has had the biggest influence on his career, he had to say Sergio Leone. Makes a lot of sense. You can see that. Many have said that this is a pretty iconic Brad Pitt dramatic irony that he doesn't want to fight in a fucking basement <laughs> after Fight Club. <laughs> Everybody references that. I, I agree. Of course, the the scene where we meet the bastards that is literally a scene to the to the T from the Dirty Dozen. Right. It looks exactly like it if you if you watch both scenes put together. There are references in this movie to Cinderella, King Kong, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, Sherlock Holmes, Piz Palu, Henri Clouseau. It goes on and on. There's a ton of references literally in this movie. Schindler's List. I would put in there too. Yeah, you have Michael Fassbender playing a movie critic. Oh, with her red red dress, yeah. Well, with her red dress and with the scene where, in the very beginning, where Shoshana is running away from Landa. Yeah. And Landa, like Ray finds in Chandler's List, has her has him within his sights when the kid in Chandler's List. UFA movie star Bridget von Hammersmark is uh, reminiscent, like I said, of the famous German actress slash singer Zara Leander. It's with a Z, so I wonder if it's pronounced Sarah. Or just angrily, Sarah! I don't know. <laughs> Either one works. Antonio Margarete. Margarete! <laughs> he he actually hand, was. hand gesture they do. Just, hmm. <laughs> he actually was an Italian camera operator. A legendary one. The giant face echoes a shot from Metropolis. Yes, and, it uh, does. <laughs> I, I get all this from Max Baird's video on YouTube. So watch that. It was really incredible. I'm also going to have something uh, from Max Baird later on. Brad Pitt was shocked. This is is one more script thought on the production. He was shocked when one of the final scenes of the movie, Tarantino started ripping up his own script. Like, this jumped out at me. Like, Brad Pitt was awed by the fact that Tarantino was not precious with the writing to the point where they would just basically improvise the ending of the scene where Tarantino would edit it on the fly. And Tarantino... He talked about the fact that he wants to do things where he has to trust his own instincts on set and in production. Well, if you're going to dabble in so many different genres, one of the keys is that you have to be flexible anyway. So that really doesn't, for as much of an ego as the guy has, I can totally see him. It, it, it really makes a lot of sense to see that he would be flexible with his own script writing, on set at least. You know, you would think that a guy with an, an ego that's out of control... He might be more precious. Sure. You know, you could make right, that argument. Right. Of course. That's how you would naturally. I mean, that would be the natural correlation. But if you also realize that that same guy is the one that's taking the, the grindhouse genre and making the best grindhouse movie, yeah. he's taking a foreign genre and trying to make a great international film here, as is the case here, I would argue that's what this is. Uh, he's done this throughout his life. You got to be versatile, at least. And part of being versatile is being willing to be flexible on certain things. Yeah, definitely was. Uh, I guess we'll finish with an Oscar lens real quick. Best picture, best director. I mean, it was nominated in six categories next to The Hurt Locker. It lost all six of those categories, including original screenplay, which Mark Bull beat him out in from The Hurt Locker. He'd later write Zero Dark Thirty. Cinematography, it lost to Avatar. And, of course, the other category, Christoph Waltz won for Best Supporting Actor. I was surprised to look back at this I have had no desire to rewatch The Hurt Locker after watching it twice yeah. that year. I mean, it's a very good movie, but it's definitely a white knuckler. Does not have the replay value. I love Catherine Bigelow's career. Is that worthy of a Best Picture winner? Yeah, I've rewatched Inglorious Bastards probably every other year of my life, if not every year. 
I think what this is doing, this practice that we're doing here, yeah. looking back at the greatest of Tarantino and saying, how did this not do better in Best Picture? How did this not do better in Best Director? I fully believe, stop me if you've heard this before, but if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that good, yeah. that all of this, all of this retrospective and looking back is going to just be feathers in his cap to put him over the top this year. Hmm. Could be. Could be. I just, he's got to hit it right. I mean, if he not agree, a, agree. He's it, it's got to be what it what it's hyping up to be. He's being ambitious with it because it's his first film post the Me Too movement, yep. post the controversies that he was Dealing a part with of. A very very taboo subject in the Manson murders. Yeah, I, there's a lot of red flags. I totally he's agree. He's got to conquer it. He's got to show that he can touch yep. on that subject matter. We're gonna we're gonna do a preview on it. But I think now we got to uh, perform. Yeah, let's uh, let's go to the theater. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure, the Mike Mike and Oscar Theatre Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. So you're Aldo the Apache. So you're the Jew hunter. Detective. A damn good detective. Finding people is my specialty, so naturally I work for the Nazis finding people. And yes, some of them are Jews, but Jew Hunter? It's just the name that's stuck. Well, you do have to admit, it is catchy. Do you control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo, the Apache, and the Little Man? What do you mean, the Little Man? The German's nickname for you. The German's nickname for me is the Little Man? This is the spoiler section for Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause, go watch it. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back and hit play. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just curious to hear our thoughts on the twists and turns, or if we've hyped up the spoiler section so much for you in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing what happens, this is where you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time ahead for Inglorious Bastards, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of the Tarantino rewatch series in a lead up to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Michael, we start this spoiler section by talking about what we have coined as trademark Tarantino, which is what this movie is known for and some of his bests. So I'm going to start with classic Tarantino. And to me, this movie is very much about power. It's the singular, I don't want to say currency, but it's definitely at the center of, of each conflict, the central tension, the difference between suspension tension. The powerless are going up against the powerful. The powerless are planning a revenge against the powerful. To me, it's distinctly clearer in this movie who's powerful and powerless in every scene and then who is going to rise up in the plot line. It's a very clean script, which I was surprised to see, but upon rewatch and study this is something that a film student is going to be able to tell you and be able to describe very quickly for all of his scripts and we we always get on tarantino for being innovative and for being someone who kind of ignores convention but yes. he does not necessarily with the beats of his films with the beats of his stories he'll shuffle thing or things around in the plot to fit those beats that you need to have and when you need to have them. But to me, this is more of a linear screenplay than than in the past, but he really does follow convention, especially for this genre. I have him following convention as something that's 
actually listed as un-Tarantino when we get to it. And your point is well taken because he doesn't leave anything out of his scripts. Mm-hmm. It's just the order that he decides to put them in. But as far as him following convention, we've remarked a considerable amount about how he lives on the circumvention of expectation. He builds up and builds up and builds up and then doesn't deliver or he undercuts the moment completely by something else. In this one, in Untarantino, when we get to it, I, I think your point is well taken in that he, he kind of does it throughout the movie here, but he especially does it in one section. I was shocked by him actually paying off the buildup. Yeah, I'm just talking about the kind of the right, spine right. of the structure. You're talking it's more overall. Really, yeah, the yeah. structure is And I agree with you. And I'm surprised by that. But it, it is classic for him when you when you take a closer look. What's your first classic Tarantino scene? My first one is the first scene. Uh, the very first shot of the movie. Uh, we talk about we regale this guy for a while for his creative shooting. It, it's not surprising he goes with the subtext early. We have a family. A woman is out in the, the yard doing the laundry. We have this pure white sheet blowing in the wind. Everyone stops. There's all sudden disturbance in the air. She removes the white sheet to see these dark, ominous black vehicles riding up the road towards the house and the farm. I mean, how much subtext do you want to fit in one opening scene? We already know who the good and bad guys are here. It's pretty incredible. Uh, every establishing shot, like I said, non-spoilers, makes you want to be there. Like, Oh my God! This is a beautiful countryside, in right. France. This beautiful house. These women are beautiful. Look at this man, handsome man, chopping wood. I want to be there. Right. And then, oh wait, do I really want to be there? Is that a Nazi coming? Yeah. This is another revenge movie. That's my second classic Tarantino trope here. He's done several in a row. Death Proof was a revenge movie. Both Kill Bill movies are revenge movies. He is on a revenge movie trilogy in a way, which was something different than what he did at the beginning of his career. But now. It is like his go-to. You know, Shoshana is out to get her revenge. The bastards are on an endless revenge mission. Yeah. You even have Londa, who's kind of vengeful against his state in the world, his status. Sure. What the Nazis have made him do, the fact that he resents the Nazis for allowing his career to come to this point, as we referenced at the beginning of this section, Mike. He wants to be a detective more than he wants to be involved in the SS, I would say. And he flips, you know, for many reasons. He's definitely a power broker in his own right, and he's a master strategist. But he flips sides because of the fact that he wants to be utilized in a different way, and he sees this grand plan as the greatest way for him to ever flip sides because... He has literally handed the Allies the war on a silver platter. Kind of makes me wish Tarantino would get into the MCU at some point, because for all the villain problems the MCU and Marvel has, I mean, who creates villains more well-rounded and more, why are we rooting for this awful, awful human being even just a tiny bit like we are right now than Tarantino, with whether you want to talk about Bill or Landa, pretty much anyone but the Grindhouse guy, (laughs) Stuntman Mike. True. I would say that Londa is the most accomplished version of the Tarantino predator villain. I agree. He he lulls his prey into a false sense of security early on, but then he communicates all these subtle messages to them, basically to show them his prowess, his wit, to force them to surrender, which is what he's all about. He's a little guy. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to shoot out. He doesn't want these things. He wants to bring them in peacefully if he can. To me, Londa is on the level of... Book Littlefinger and Book Varys from Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire. He's that good. He's on the level of Sherlock Holmes, and Tarantino basically wanted him to be his Sherlock Holmes. But the biggest point I want to make is these scenes are scenes that we get in Jackie Brown, just not as good. These scenes are scenes that we get in Death Proof, just not as good. The the whole formula of these scenes are there in much smaller versions because I don't think Tarantino 
knew these scenes were working as well as this one. And we're going to talk about that in writing advice. I'll tell you why. But they mirror a lot that that Ordell scene with Chris Tucker. Mm-hmm. Tucker. It mirrors the scene with Butterfly and the girls at the great bar there with Kurt Russell. Because of the tension building that he does throughout his writing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, a really understated point. You talked about all the good that Landa does and why he is so well-rounded. And yet he's still this guy that like right from his first moment on screen, you want milk? You son of a bitch. Fuck you, you want milk. Why do you want milk? That's gross. That's so off-putting. You're, we know you're evil, and yet you're here basically patronizing this guy, rubbing his whole existence in his face that he lives on a farm, so I'm going to drink your product for free, and then I'm going to basically harass your family. And, and then after he ogles the daughters, right. which I think was deliberate. Oh, yeah. Oh, it sure. Was, he's it, a gross human being. I mean, this guy... And he's, he's putting on a play, though. He's putting on a performance for the father. He's basically saying, well, in, in look at your way, beautiful yeah. daughters. Right. I will cut... I will grasp their hand and show you how much I think they're beautiful and the father's thinking the worst here because you got to get the father to basically give up the people under this under right. sti- under the house but he's still the same villain I mean as much as he's putting on a performance in that way he's still the same villain where even the Nazi that single-handedly shot down 220 some odd soldiers from a bell tower mm-hmm. needs to pause before he leaves his girlfriend alone with with this guy because his reputation precedes him so much yeah it's like listen we're on the same side here, right? You don't need to harass this girl. Everything's cool, right? Like, giving that double check before he actually leaves Londa alone with Shoshana at the lunch. After he orders her the milk, by the way. Can yeah, you, right. You think- Which was just, oh, God. Isn't that brilliant? Loved it. Now, do you think he knows, or is that no. just the point? He's just, we're, we're forced to question right. whether what exactly he knows yes. and what he's figuring out on the fly. Well, even if he didn't order milk, right? Yeah. Tarantino writes another scene, another line of dialogue in that very scene where he's staring through this girl with this serious face. And he's like, I forgot what I was going to say. Must not be important. It's amazing. (laughs) Once he does his serious face, you know shit's going to go down. It happens three times in the movie. But the second time, the shit doesn't go down. (laughs) He just orders strudel or, you know, finishes, puts a cigarette in his strudel literally there. So, yes, I completely agree. This is... An amazing character. Well, and bravo to Waltz too, because I wholeheartedly believe there's not a lot of actors that could pull off not only the the multilinguistics that this character called for, but the charm with the despicable evilness attached to it, and then kind of threading that through line of I don't really want to do this anyway, and not yeah. this guy anyway. So my segue into Sneaky Classic is kind of how he pulled off his classic structure, because he does use five chapters once again. You start Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. That's the setup for the villain, setup for the movie, because it's also the setup for Shoshana, which you don't know at the time. She's going to be a huge character in the film. Then you have yourselves thrown into Act 2 after the introduction to the Bastards. So Inglorious Bastards is the start of, of Act 2. You have A German Night in Paris, which catapults Shoshana and Landa back into each other's lives along with Operation Kino, which brings Hammersmark and Fassbender. So you have those two long scenes, and you got a lot of things interwoven throughout. But, Mike, I think it's amazing how Act 2 is those two chapters, essentially, and then Act 3, Revenge of the Giant Face, that's just, to me, it's very, very clean. And the big premiere being Act 3, and, and you're, at some point it goes into Act 3 there, it's incredible how, how he gives us this three-act structure, which when you truly break it down is more like a five-act thing, five-part movie, especially if you talk about well, the midpoint. Well, that's historical film. literature. Right? Yeah. Not, not screenwriting necessarily, but you know the the five yeah. part, the beginning, the rising action, the crescendo, the climax, the falling action, that's, yeah. that's right. To me, the more you, you 
break down act twos. Act twos typically have like three, three parts, parts to yeah. them. Yeah, the lead into the midpoint and then mm-hmm. coming out of the midpoint and the midpoints, it's its own thing. So the, to me, I've always uh, gotten angry and frustrated with the three-act structure because to me, I've always said five. Yeah, it's always five. You're so right. It's, act two it's is fun that this, curve. Yeah. you got to get into it and then you got to get hit the high point and you got to get out. you got to go up, high point, yeah. down. And this this is a great example of the, how he hits that. So what's your first sneaky classic thing, though? I really only had one sneaky classic and it, it, I'm still trying to put it together in my head because... He's got this way of making his characters talk past one another. We, we've hit on it before, and we've talked about how it's always, like, downtime and then mm-hmm. violence erupts. And yes, that does happen, but at the same time, even if you think about Kill Bill Volume 1, you have that scene where Vivica A. Fox and Uma Thurman are talking in the kitchen after having just fought, and they're, they're saying things, but they're kind of talking past each other. Mm-hmm. That's magnified in this scene, which is my favorite scene in this movie, in the bar scene, where Fassbender and the SS officer are kind of talking past each other where they're still feeling out one another. They cle- Fassbender clearly doesn't trust this guy, and this, the SS officer knows, he thinks something's up, and then he's kind of assuaded that there isn't, and then finally, when Fassbender does the three fingers thing. But the whole while, I, I was just getting caught up in Fassbender's fake laughing and thinking in my head how he's portraying a, a guy who's a spy cosplaying as an SS officer that needs to placate this man in front of him. So nothing he's saying really matters. It's just that he's talking on like three separate levels, but everybody, us included, are just waiting for the gunshots. It's amazing how Tarantino buries us in the minutia right. of all this conversation, which is, those are his words, to the point where you're not, ex- you you are expecting something to come out like of it. Like you know something's not, coming. It happened in Pulp Fiction. They're talking about Royales with cheese. There you and go too, you yeah. Get, that scene it happens at Reservoir Dogs when they're ta- at the diner talking mm-hmm. about you know Madonna's new song, and then leading it. It happens in each one of these movies. It's it's the way Tarantino kind of lulls you to sleep as an audience. You're having fun. With sure, you're the, along for the ride. The for King sure. Kong but, reference, but at the same time, you're like, fucking something's happening. Soon. Something's gonna. Happen. <laughs> this is building. My second sneaky classic thing, and it really should be classic, but the way he makes these characters rounded. OMFG, how? How does he do this? Because... It's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. I I can't believe he makes Londa so capable. He's a cannibal lector capable. He's a genius. And you can't help but just be in awe of his character, right? He's one of those rare characters that you're just drawn to by like a magnetic... Very charisma. Charisma? Very charismatic is the actual word. And then he does something so heinous... As choking Diane Kruger's von Hammerschmark character to death, it's just heinous. It's the, like, like one of the grossest scenes in the movie. He'll fight that dirty, and yet he'll be so charming in the scene previous to that, where you know he's toying with these people. He knows exactly who they are, yeah. and they know that he knows exactly who they are. And he's he does that big laugh scene after she tells him. Like I was thinking, like he must be calculating his own brain what are the what's the story she's gonna get exactly for the exactly what's gonna be this woman is actually gonna try to tell me she was climbing mountains yesterday in paris right right? and he 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 almost is like well of course yada 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 i'm going to checkmate you and then i'm gonna let you live and it's unbelievable that scene and he laughs so hard at the that was the bullshit story you went with and she knows she's cooked she knows i mean she knows right from that moment Uh, not to piggyback on what you're saying not necessarily making them well-rounded but at least giving you even the most mo- Goebbels we don't get a lot of interaction with in this scene in this movie overall right we, we get some but he's certainly not a main player mm-hmm. and yet 
like the one cutscene in the bra in the lunch where they're having, where Goebbels is having sex with his interpreter, and he's letting off these pig squeals yeah! to totally undercut his character. <laughs> like he does stuff like this. We know exactly the type of man Goebbels is, or is at least portrayed to be in this movie. But even Goebbels gets the close-ups where he's tearing up at the fact that Hitler is loving Loves his exactly, movie. and you feel yeah. you emotionally you feel for this person. Yeah, you know who he is. Uh, you know the exact type of person he is. Uh, he's he's there when when. Zor Kohler is pitching to move the move the premiere to Shoshana's theater. Uh, Goebbels is disgusted. Everything, every detail he learns about the cinema. Oh, well, more boxes would be better. Oh, why would I do it to such a tiny theater? But okay, I'll be the bigger man here because I adore my private so much, private Zoller so much, right. and he's so smitten with this girl. I'll let him play along. I'll go with his plan. Like we know exactly what type of man this is on screen. Yeah, he's scum, and yet he's got human moments, right. and it, even it works the other way. It's a double-edged sword because the heroes. You have Perrier, Lapadite to start the movie. Is there a man more heroic in those early scenes? Right. More calm and collected and getting ready for battle. Is there a man that's that's fighting more honorably against this foe, which we realize is the devil himself, to the point where you're like so impressed with this man for his courage, and then you understand why he breaks and those close-ups showing him break because he's breaking by a series of a thousand cuts in that scene to the point where finally Landa's hitting him with some big blows. The pipe, the pipe, the bigger the pipe. comically large pipe. That looked like it was straight out of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He knows he's... Once he realizes he's, he's cooked... He has to well, save. He brings his, up his family. Yeah. He has to save his family right. at that point. I mean, he, he and then he, you can see the revelation coming over his eyes. Oh, he did the hawks and the rat scene, so he knows exactly where. So this thing, can, can these we, people are. Can we take a quick diversion here and talk about? This is something I mentioned to you, and I don't want to get completely off track, but why are we okay with the way the Nazis talk about the Jewish people in this? Is it just because we figure all Nazis are the scum of the earth, and this is how they actually talked? I mean, not that they they didn't use the worst slang that we've ever heard to describe yeah. that type of person. You know, Jew hunter is not something we can't say. I mean, this is a, a hunter of the Jews during the Holocaust. It makes sense that that would be his nickname. Is that a racial racial slur? I don't think so. Even if it maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But my my point overall is that in other movies, Tarantino uses the worst words, and they they are like they they're like beast things to our ears, right? He stopped using them at the same frequency in the Kill Bill movies and then Death Proof couldn't have got could have got a lot grimier. It really could. Sure. Have. Yeah, and, yeah. and it really wasn't. It was it was a gross movie in what we saw, not necessarily in what we heard throughout. I mean we saw the ogling the camera was much more gratuitous than the dialogue right. in that movie. So maybe he actually did learn something until Django comes out. Yeah, don't worry. I'll make up yeah. for it in Django. <laughs> so <laughs> that will be drove insane, which we already were yeah. when we covered it before. Uh, but I do think that Londa, in a way, is very merciful at times. And he lets Shoshana run away to an extent. And this has bothered me ever since I first watched it. Like, what's for him to send two guys after her? Just, all right, two of you, go get her. Just with a, a flick of his hand, he can have the other people. He's got like five or six guys there. He could easily get sure. her. To me, it's like he's just, again, toying with his food or what. He's like, all right, that's enough killing for today. He's merciful to Shoshana. Like, he they don't get Shoshana. We don't see her out with them in the forest. We don't see any of that. To me, Tarantino is telling us that this guy is, he's a rounded character right from the start. It's, I think to answer that, it's how you interpret what he does in selling out the German army at the end. 
because he's the he's on the phone with the American generals. He wants to make this sweep apart deal for himself. So do you believe he's he sees the writing on the wall and the Germans can't win? Or do I, you believe he's actually fed up with what the what he has to do as a Nazi soldier and he can't take it anymore? By the end of the movie, I think he is seeing that the Americans are going to win. They're on so the shores. Right. If, 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 uh, my, my point is it's a matter of interpretation. So if that's what you believe, then he's just a bad guy and there's no reason for him not to have gone off the Shoshana. So maybe it was just arrogance on his part. Maybe it was just arrogance at that point, but maybe he was getting sick of it because he is so capable of being charming. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just think it's a, it's very deliberate that sure. they, that in that scene, he literally said goodbye to her. Au revoir, Shoshana. Au revoir, Shoshana. To finish the scene. And he let her go in, in a very clear way to me. Or maybe it was just a plot device because we needed someone that runs the theater that wanted to kill Nazis. Yeah, that could be too. <laughs> I do think that mirrors, you know, the bride and with the crazy 88s letting them leave with their limbs. It mirrors Harvey Keitel's character and his paternal sense or paternal cling to uh, Tim Roth's character. Well, it's almost the literal adaptation of what we want from Kill Bill Volume 3 in a way. You know, it's the young girl running away and coming back and getting revenge later on. Right. To me, these characters are not sociopaths. And that's a sneaky classic thing about all of these Tarantino characters. Very you well don't written. have these evil-to-the-bone characters. You have heroes who are willing to go to great lengths of cruelty and torture and bloodletting like the bastards, like Shoshana. She's willing to burn them all alive. Mm -hmm. And she's like a husk of a human being throughout that. She, she barely feels emotion, right? Or she barely lets on. I mean, she's she's numbed herself after the death yep. of her family to, to the point where she's going to survive. And if she can in any way get revenge, she's going to get revenge. She decides to get revenge well before the Operation Kino takes full effect, well before she realizes Hitler's coming. Oh, no, as soon as... They're using her cinema. She's like, we're burning this place down. It's going to be full of Nazis? Yeah. Burn the motherfucker yep. down. And that's fascinating to me, that how these characters... And both yet, both and sides at the around. same time, it's he's very Tarantino's very protective of Aldo, of, of the John Wayne character, right? Because he doesn't let Aldo kill Wilhelm in the bar when Aldo has the remaining bastards alive and they're negotiating for the life of, of Van Hammersmark. Like, he doesn't let Aldo pull that trigger. He make, lets Van Hammersmark pull that trigger because Aldo, the Americans have integrity and ethics and they're, they're war heroes here. Yeah, and then the next scene, though, Aldo's poking his finger in her leg <laughs> right. and her damn, right? So well, that's Aldo's the good of the country. Doing, Aldo's doing despicable things throughout this whole movie. He's the most despicable. He is shown to be the most despicable reneging on his deal with Londa at the very, I'll get chewed out. I've it's, been chewed out before. It's all for country. <laughs> it's fucked up is what it is. Uh, let, let's dive into Untarantino. Are you ready for that? Yeah, let's talk about it. So the Untarantino, what I let off with and what I was alluding to at the very start, how you say the structure of this movie is very in place and it does have a payoff. He pays off buildup like he has not done in his previous five films up to this point. Four films, five films, I don't remember. Right. We've been doing this a long time already. <laughs> uh, so the, the very first instance of this is when we introduce the Bear Jew. And we have Donnie taking care of the, the SS soldier in the woods. Yeah. And we have Donnie's big intro and this big cinem cinematic offering. We hear him coming like the what's the monster from Star Wars? 
The Rancor. Yeah, we hear him coming like the yeah, Rancor. He is coming rancor. out of the dark here with his baseball bat, and he walks out, and it's Eli Roth, and he's he's all pumped up, and then we get the surrender by Ennio Morricone playing, and he's toying with the medals on the Nazi officer, and usually in Tarantino's movies, historically, he'll undercut this. Like, we won't see it, or something will happen, or we'll cut scenes, and then we'll come back and see the violence, and I was expecting the cutaway... No, we get a guy beaten with a baseball bat in the skull. It's a foreshadowing <laughs> to the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, we saw all the build-up, and then he gives us the exact payoff that we Exactly expected. what he was building towards. Which, it's it's not on any other director, but it's on Tarantino, because we're, get, we're at this point where we can wax poetic about his filmmaking, because he's so used to undercutting his own films, and his own moments like that. I, I totally agree. And he does not go for as much tension with surprise as he goes for suspense in this film. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that in his screenwriting advice and how he exactly he, he tells tells us he did it. My un-Tarantino is the power of language. He really talks about language a lot in this film. It was something that he, when he was being interviewed for the movie, he, he, it was one of his biggest pet peeves about war movies. Like the characters in American war movies spoke English on the American side, and then the Germans also spoke English, but he got mad at the fact that there would be so many covers blown and so many okay. things happen. I, I agree, and yet the movie within the movie here is in English. The nation's whatever that 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 actually played in the art house cinema for the Nazis is spoken in English. It's not in German at all. Well, the, the end line, who wants to send a message to Germany, he's yelling at the American soldiers. In that film. Yes, but he's... Prior to that, he was speaking English, like, like firing at the Nazis. I remember... I, firing at the it, Americans. Yeah, firing at the Americans. Well, I'm that's sorry, yes. why, because he's firing at Americans, I think. I don't know. So you think it was all just him? It may have been. I, I don't know. But I just... I, I heard that, and I was like, well, that's bizarre. He's gone to bizarre. such great lengths well, that, to cover everything with language so far. That's why Shoshana had to speak English in the, the, final, the final thing, or at least that's why she was wanting to speak English because no. it segued perfectly. But to me, like, I mean, the, the whole thing with the three fingers was wild. The, to have that scene turn love that scene. on the different yeah. way to put up three fingers. I just, I, I love just putting up three fingers in all different ways. I'm doing it now. <laughs> I'm like, which way would I do it? That wouldn't be something I would even thought of. But uh, obviously you have the accents. Obviously you have the imperative to cast authentic actors that speak the languages it's more than one scene, though. The way they switch languages in that first sequence. You think Londa's just doing it for us, and he is, but he's also doing it because he doesn't want the people under the house right. to understand what's going on. You have the, the, everything with the Italian. You have the comedy of the of the language, the power of the comedy. Buongiorno. <laughs> it kills me. <laughs> Buongiorno. Yeah. Grazie. Well, it it kind of goes to language, but it kind of doesn't in that he has a reason for everything. And this, is, this isn't this is necessarily un-Tarantino. I guess it's it's more just great filmmaking. But he has an, an objection explained away at every turn in this. Mm -hmm. Why does Landa use English in the house? You just said the reason. Why does Von Hammerschmidt... Or, Von <laughs> Hammerschmark. Von Hammerschmark. I'm not going to get that I'm pronouncing right. it like uh, Aldo is. Von Hammerschmark. You can't Von, say it. Von, why does Von Hammerschmark leave behind an autographed copy letting everyone know she was at the bar that night when Mayhem went down and her body's not around because Whoops. she was helping Wilhelm? Like, everything has a purpose up to and including how the hell... Would a filmmaker who owns a cinema that's going to run the premiere of this great German film get her home video produced 
to be able to play it on the real with the real with the actual German movie. Well, it's because in a quick Sally Menke edited montage, yeah. they're holding <laughs> she and Marcel are holding someone hostage to force them to make produce the film. And it was it's in English, which he doesn't know apparently. Right, you can gather that much, which helps her allow him to do it without her having to kill him in that scene right. because it's someone she knows and she's impersonating being on the German yes. side in that scene. So it's it's incredible the scene and it's it's about language and language is weaponized throughout this entire film. It's, it's extraordinary even to the point where Landa's like, you know, disarmed a little bit by that's a bingo. <laughs> <laughs> and then, is that how you say it? bingo Alfon bingo. <laughs> and he's like almost he feels uncool in that scene. Right. It, it, he's literally you know, she's got this big grand plan, and it's supposed to be a moment of triumph for him, and he's supposed to have this worthy adversary who respects him as much as he respects that adversary, right. and then he's just totally disrobed throughout that scene. It's not going the Is way he Is that how the English say it? And it's foreshadowing <laughs> the end where he gets his comeuppance that we needed. That, that was revenge that we needed after he choked Von Hammersmark. Yeah, we can't have the bad guy win. And, and, and be okay with it. And, we, and who knows that? Aldo knows that. Mr. America, John Wayne knows that. I also liked in Tarantino how he turned this into the American folk hero and John Wayne meets the British folk hero and James Bond when it's Fassbender talking to Brad Pitt. I mean, yeah. these are just... When Fassbender and Michael Myers are talking to each other as just overly, over-the-top English like stereotypes... The, the guys at the country... Because I heard that's not a, an accent. That is basically how the aristocracy in Britain spoke and how basically Tarantino described it as our country is in ruins and yes. we want this war to be over with already <laughs> dialect and it was the officer's dialect at the time it was kind of like the uh, you know caddyshack the guys who own the country club and sail on the yacht scene. they put <laughs> right. stick out the jaws that's how the american aristocracy speaks kind of thing and it's and that was the british version yeah. of that and mike myers whose father and mother were served in the intelligence yeah, yeah and knew that dialect and then fassbender who nailed it Killed right. me. I was la I was dying laughing during that scene. All the way down. So. <laughs> <laughs> killed me. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's uh, dive into some worse scenes. I do have two, and I'm shocked at the So two give scenes. them to me, because I really had a tough time coming up with stuff. Like, that glorious finale of violence, maybe I'm old and mellowed, but kept going through my head all these news reports and all the thing, all the documentaries we've been reliving and all the... All the mass shootings that we've been going through, like, is he glorifying this? This level of violence? I, it's hard to like that. Like, I was afraid of that scene more than I was young and just vengeful. When I when I watched this in 2009, I was like, yeah, yeah. shoot those Nazi sons of bitches. So I think that's the point. I, I think you hit on, you just kind of answered it, the, the conundrum. If it was anyone but the Nazis and Adolf Hitler's Nazi party right. specifically... I could see a lot more uh, deference to that point of view. I could see having problems with it regardless, but I think the reason I didn't, personally, is because it was Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels and it was all these horrible, horrible people that did all these horrible, horrible things. And then Londa killing Von Hammersmark. As brutal and it's as primal and it's as horrible to watch as anything So we have to talk movie. about that. And that that's what we've alluded to a couple times. Uh, Diane Kruger was actually choked out by Quentin Tarantino on set. The difference as a stunt. Look, I she agreed to it. Right, and this she, this is the biggest difference for me. Yeah, is that she has spoken 
often gl- glowingly about her time working with Tarantino, including that she was up for that and wanted that to happen. She wanted him to Joker to get the right flesh color and get the right scene and get the right look and get it done with. Yeah. And she has said, I, I think her quote was that she has nothing but, but, but marvelous things to say about her time on set. So for me, that's the difference. And you could draw your own lines, and that's why we're not... It's probably no, doesn't rise to right. the to the same uh, threshold as some other stuff we've talked about, controversies involving Tarantino up to this point. You know, you watch uh, Brad Pitt in the making of this movie. He's getting tackled in scenes, and th- they're performing stunts. Uma Thurman wasn't game for those stunts. Exactly. Had to be talked into those stunts. Exactly the Kill difference Bill. for me. Yep. And I, I think it, can go, it doesn't matter if she's a, a woman or a man, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Like... Diane Kruger could have been Hans Landa. If Hans Landa wasn't game, if yeah. Christoph Waltz wasn't game to be choked at the end, if, you know, who knows? No, I'm, I'm with, like, I, consent is what matters. I agree. Consent, yeah, consent is, what matters. is what matters here. And if you're up for it, if you're game for it, there's a big difference between Quentin being the one keeping his stunt coordinator offset that day and then pleading with his lead actress to do a stunt she is reluctant to do and... The actress, in this case, saying, yeah, I'm game. Do it. Let's get it done. So how about the final story here? It goes back to my first uh, worst worst whatever part of that great scene, I guess. Greg Nicotero, that, that fire almost got out of control in that scene. It burned at like 800 degrees hotter than they expected it to. It was to. supposed to be 400 degrees Celsius. It burned at 1,200 degrees Celsius. And... Wild. I, it wasn't like Pet Cemetery bad where the stars were getting singed by it and literally burned by it, but it was it was bad. It was out of Wild. control. Whew. Yeah, to the point, I and mean, this has been written about a lot, but to the point where one of the Nazi, the, the Schwarzenegger flags, was held by chains and not supposed to burn down. It was not supposed to fall. The chains actually got weak because the fire was so hot, and it fell. Just incredible. Well, let's get into some screenwriting advice from Quentin Tarantino here, and... Basically, I'm captioning this as Quentin Tarantino, master of suspense. So Tarantino is not known for his suspense. And we talked about this throughout the first five or six films. To our credit, we've highlighted that often. (laughs) He rarely goes for suspense. He he goes for tension and then something surprising happens. Undercuts, cuts away, something happens. Subversion of the audience's expectations. expectations. The old Hitchcock trope on suspense and this is uh, explained by Max Baird in that video I keep referencing, is that, you know, Hitchcock talks about people on a bus. And you can have a scene where 10 minutes later, the people on the bus blow up. If cinematically, you shoot that scene, and at the one of the early parts of that scene, you tell the audience that there's a bomb ticking away on the bus, well, now you got a whole different scene. It's that simple. In this movie, Tarantino follows that trope. It, early on... Almost literally. <laughs> literally, in the opening sequence, you have the pan down underneath the house to show the Jews hiding under the, the floor. In the scene, the finale of the movie, you pan down and you show the dynamite, the sticks of dynamite on all their legs. Yeah. You show the whole... The stack of nitrate films behind, behind the screen. Behind the screen. Yeah. You have Shoshana's plot working. So you're wondering, okay, this place is going to go up. It's going to blow up. Are they going to do it with Shoshana or are they going to do it with the bastards? We and don't that's know the that genius time. of the entire plot right there to me is that this is happening. I mean, that's this is where the suspense comes in. Like, and it's just like what I talked about how we actually get Donnie beating the Nazi in the head with the baseball bat like, right. or, or, or the gunfight breaking out in the bar scene. Something's going to happen. 
How is it going to get there? Because we have these competing storylines that are all racing to the finish right now. The fact that it's Tarantino behind the camera here makes us as an audience worry all the more because we know how much he loves these explosions of violence. We're yeah. going to get a payoff that's crazier than we've ever seen because we know Tarantino's work up till now. And Tarantino talked about it. He's he's like, the more you can stretch out these scenes like a rubber band until they break, I mean, that's the goal. And, and that's the goal of writing a suspense sure. scene. Yeah. And, and, and according to him, he's like... Screw him for making it sound so easy. <laughs> he says longer scenes work better yeah. for suspense scenes. And that's why he went with such you know long scenes. He told that to he who shall not be named great interviewer of the 90s who's since been outed as another scumbag but mike uh, I, I think it's masterful what he does here with how great would it be to see him and clearly the guy can do whatever he wants whether it's any kind of genre or any kind of suspense film how great would it be to see him do a, a through and through suspense thriller type movie just to see him flex his wings in that genre one time or even a, an out and out horror film like I, I wanted to see for kind of a Kill Bill 3B when I pitched it. Like, I would love to see him go to an area where you have to be, suspense is expected. Okay, like everything else with Tarantino, like you do, we expect this now. Where's the payoff? What's the payoff going to be? Are you going to undercut this? Are you going to subvert it? What are you going to do? I would love to see going in with those expectations what he could come out with. It's crazy because he subverted our expectations of this being a subversive movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which means he just did what anyone else would do. Like, like, he just got to the point in his career where he could just let the scenes play out. And it's a surprise to us. <laughs> yeah, that they played out how we right. thought they might at the beginning of it. And He's then he a put mad the glorious spectacle of it, or the inglorious spectacle of Aha. it. Yeah. That, uh, that shocks us at yeah. the end of it. So it's still shocking, but of it, course. we're on a roller coaster with this man's filmography. He is a madman of cinema. Yes. Uh, it's been fun up until now. Boy, am I hesitant to do Django. <laughs> yeah, good God. <laughs> Easter eggs and connections to the Tarantino-verse, Mike. Yeah, I only have a couple. I don't really have anything for the Tarantino-verse myself. I don't know if you do. I know you have a couple things as well. We're all aware of how much Tarantino enjoys the idea of framing a film as a once-upon-a-time-in, because... Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> you saw the title of chapter one in this movie, titled Once Upon a Time in Occupied France, but did you know that was the original working title of this movie as a whole? Tarantino would only change the title to Inglorious Bastards after consideration of how friends at the video rental store he worked at would tease his passion of film by saying, well, Quentin, maybe someday you'll make your Inglorious Bastards movie, referring to the 1978 Enzo Castellari movie of the same name. Mm -hmm. But Quentin was always insisted that his Inglorious Bastards movie was different, not the same, and not a remake. Yeah, because there's a huge and inglorious and there's an e instead of an a in bastards just look at the spelling is what the next slide i have <laughs> but please don't ask him about that first extraneous you there's some film secrets that need to stay yeah, he did say that at the Cannes <laughs> film festival he's like if i if i explain it all right it just takes the the luster off of it okay i mean did you mention samuel jackson I didn't, nor Harvey Keitel. So Samuel Jackson does a voiceover narration throughout this film, and then Harvey Keitel is the voice on the allied end of the phone. That's great. Londa's making the deal with literally the wolf himself. I mean, what authoritative voice would you want there other so, than the like, wolf? How does that happen? Is he on the phone with Kaitel and's like, "Hey, Carver, can you just say a couple lines to me real quick while I get my recorder?" Like, how? Where is this? Where does this come from? Does he actually come in to just record those two lines of dialogue and leave? And here's your paycheck. Can you imagine if he's actually on the other line with 
Christoph Waltz performing. Oh, yeah, oh, that'd be even better. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's amazing. Speaking of director Castellari, who made the 78 original and glorious Baptist film, he not only gave his blessing for Tarantino to title his film with the same name in exchange for a small cameo in, in Tarantino's movie, it turns out that Castellari's real name is Enzo Gorlami. Sound yes. familiar? That's good. I didn't know that. <laughs> and it, and Castellari is in the film. Yes, he is. He has a small cameo. So that was a payment for his uh, giving his blessing for Tarantino. And he interviewed Tarantino. He got Tarantino to sit down with him for a long interview during the end of the writing process. So Tarantino had kind of you know forged this deal a, a year beforehand, which was fascinating. I watched that interview with like Tarantino, very nervous about the project. It was really strange because usually he's so you know jubilant, and egomaniacal. Yeah, is the word you're bit. looking for. A little bit. All right. So the one thing I want to talk about as an Easter egg here is the whole allegory theory that this is an allegory for Tarantino's. 1995 Oscars experience, award season experience. I love this stuff. Okay. So essentially, Tarantino is Aldo Rain, and Tarantino sure. is entering France for the Cannes Film Festival, has success at the Cannes Film Festival, just like the Bastards are having success. The power of cinema is on full display here, but you have producers of Forrest Gump willing to campaign going to the the end of the world their rep representative of landa here going to the ends of the earth to fight as dirty as possible to the point where they'll flip sides at the last minute and to win over the academy so that story again tom hanks and robert zemeckis are nazis in tarantino's view in tarantino's <laughs> view now i don't know who the academy is supposed to be is, is it supposed to be the germans or is it supposed to be the Allied Forces? I would say the Allied Forces, according to Barry. He, he's very vague about it, because it's kind of a thin allegory, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I, I would say it's the Allied Forces, because they're the ones that give Landa the trophy. So at the end of this movie, Tarantino has to get revenge on Landa, the Academy, and right. still make his mark ah, on Landa. Not a great parallel if you're going to say he makes his mark by putting a swastika on a guy's forehead, but I get the idea. Makes his mark. <laughs> it's like the good dinosaur, the same thing. Uh, speaking of carving up some bodies in this and putting a, a certain insignias forever and not being able to take a uniform off as is Aldo Rain's obsession, Tarantino does in fact once again appear in his own film here, this time with a giant Kill Bill-sized asterisk as one of the dead bodies that was scalped by B.J. Novak's character yeah. was not Tarantino, but a body double of Tarantino's, a kind of a mannequin. He's got to be in it. <laughs> of course. Somewhere. Of course. It's his film. So, connections to the Tarantino verse, Mike. The big thing I wanted to talk about was Tarantino uses real people in this movie. Throughout the movie, w with the German High Command and the Allied High Command, what is he trying to say by doing this alternate history? What do we think he's trying to say? Is this something that's going to happen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? or is he? Yes. He might subvert our expectations again, though. I'm not putting it past him to just have the murders play out and have it being a very sobering finale. Because I, I, I kind of get that feeling that he's going to... We All right, we're getting the Manson family. We're going to get alternate history. Yeah, Brad Pitt's going to kill. everybody's expecting it, yeah. And he'll yeah. just show us and he'll actually pay off the drama of it. This is the, real, the reality of these nightmarish people. But you got this hyper-reality, this revenge fantasy... It is a revenge fantasy literally accomplished by the power of cinema. So is he talking about our intentions 
as an audience member, as a moviegoer, as this is how we can look back at history. We can look at it with good intentions. We can look at it by thinking that we can change it through the power of cinema in a way. One of the Tarant- and that's good and bad. One of the Tarantino verse, I, I, I don't remember if it's from Reddit or if it's from an article. It's been a long time since I read it, but roughly one of the Tarantino verse reasonings about why the movie movies are palatable, even though they're so violent yeah. within the realer than real universe that exists in the Tarantino verse, is because Hitler uh, was killed in such a savagely brutal way in that reality that the it's more gory and over-the-top violence is more palatable by everyday people because it's an actual part of what happened in their history. Mm-hmm. So that kind of plays in in that way, if you think about those two universes actually existing on purpose. Uh, as far as what it says about us, I don't know. I think that's a decent, a decent question to leave up to interpretation. I mean, he's saying it's just a movie, in a way? Yeah. Hey, this is just a movie, and... This is it's there's, me- there's it's certainly metaphor. evidence to back that. I mean, when you have a guy shooting Hitler's dead body and tearing off the, the dummy's face and it looks so fake and plastic when Hitler's already supposed to be dead, that's that's done for comedy. That's not a serious shot there. Right. You could see the fake, the plastic tearing apart. So I don't know. It's interesting. It, it is very interesting, and he uses the power of cinema, like I started to say, as a literal device in the movie, not. A metaphor, as he has been quoted to say, even though this is clearly a fantasy and you're involving the power of cinema, I don't know what the symbolism of this movie is. I, I've watched this once a year. This might be my seventh or eighth watch. I watched it twice for this, you know, this episode today, and I still don't know. It's still a very complex film, even though it's kind of a clean structure. It's a very complex film, and it's something that you're going to study for a long time. This might be why Udovich. It is his masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, I said Udovich, yeah, this is his masterpiece. <laughs> this is his masterpiece. Isn't it possible that this Terrible is just accent. what he wanted to have as his war movie? I mean, is there, it, it's possible there's no alter alternative message here, right? He just wanted I to I think have, this is such a meta narrative. You think that it, it has, has to, to be. be? Okay. It has to be. And I just haven't pinpointed it yet. I mean, I know he's talking about power, and he's, he's talking about revenge, and he's talking about language, and the power of cinema as major devices in this movie. Here's what I'll say from my law career. That when I had a memo that was due, and I was working on it, and reworking it, and working on it, and reworking it, and it got to a point, after being with me in my life for so long, that I was like, I'm ending this thing? And however it is, I don't care, because I'm getting it the fuck out of my life, and I'm submitting it. <laughs> So, and he put himself on that time crunch, so that echoes to me that he was just like, I've been working on this fucking thing since 1998. Well, he put him on, himself on the time crunch once he knew he had the story. Yes. He didn't put him on yeah. the time. Like, he he was not going to do the story if he didn't get the perfect actor. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't think he just said, all right, this is the best I can. I mean, he, is, he always says saying that. This is my war movie. Oh, this at the end of this fucking movie, he says, "Is this my masterpiece?" Through the character that he was supposed to play. I don't know. I disagree. That's right, interesting. I, you could be. I, I don't know. I have nothing. I have you're nothing. a nihilist, Lebowski. I have. I have. I have nothing to I, say. That. I have I dis- nothing but speculation to back it up with. So I don't know. I don't you know. You could either. be very right. Um, so I guess one way to transition is that the obvious thing about the Tarantino verse is that there's a character in this movie who is supposedly the character of the screenwriter or the agent in True Romance. We don't cover True Romance. That's the most obvious link. We don't use this section to talk about obvious links anyway. Okay. So I just wanted to put that out there. But as far as other anecdotes and funny things about this movie, it was a big deal at the time, I remember. It hasn't been so much. I actually forgot about it until I was doing research, so I thought it was worth bringing up that not only was Nation's Pride, the movie within the movie here, directed by Eli Roth. Yeah. 
Eli Roth's character was supposed to be played by Adam Sandler, who had to step aside for funny games to work with Judd Apatow. Wow. And funny, pe- funny people. Funny Games is a horrific German film. Horrifying. Right. It is horrific. And the remake is <laughs> yeah, I decent, remake. too. Yeah. But uh, Eli Roth also did a mockumentary about the making of Nation's Pride, where he plays this German <laughs> character. Goebbels is also in it and stuff. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's not funny, as you would... <laughs> They were trying to be funnier than it was. Just like we are. Yeah. And we do. Often. That's <laughs> all I got, Mike. Me too. I am spent. Yeah, that was a long one today. We figured it would be. This is a personal favorite of mine, certainly amongst Tarantino's catalog. Uh, obviously, you say yeah. you watch it a bunch yourself, so I assume the same is true. But we want to know your thoughts. Are you a fan of this movie? Did you learn anything new today? Do we have something that we didn't address? Uh, what do you think this movie stands for? What is the meaning that Tarantino was going for? Settle this dispute between Mike and I. You could reach out to us. We want to hear that, as well as your comments, thoughts, criticisms, collections, anything you have about anything done in the MMO universe or MMO empire, reach out to us, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Just type in Mike, Mike, and Oscar right now. Pretty much anywhere you'll see our cartoon faces smiling back at you. Uh, if you take a couple seconds out of your day, if you appreciate what we do here, we would appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Those truly mean a lot to us each and every one. We appreciate those that have done so already. Michael, what is next in the MMO universe? And what are some words of wisdom to end this episode on? Well, we're going to do Django Unchained and then uh, The Hateful Eight as the next two Tarantino podcasts. We're going to have a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood preview episode heading into that uh, premiere. Then we'll review that the, the week after, after some study, because you got to study these Tarantino movies, and these episodes are massive. So we're going to take the time to study it, and you'll just have the preview episode out the week of. We're also in the midst of our mid-year Oscars report. We just released part one of that. We'll have two and three. We're going category by category and highlighting some major contenders and some fun narratives and basically introducing our horse race portion of the year which is all about the award season, which we love to do. It's what we do. It's why we're here. It's why we're doing these rewatch series leading up to all the Pixar series leading up to Toy Story 4, all the Tarantino episodes leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We expect both of those to be around come Oscars time. Michael, words of wisdom. Send these people home happy. Life has meaning. Life, (laughs) whether it's in a a real universe, a hyper-real universe, a realer-than-real universe, it has meaning, Michael. That's my words. You're a jerk. <laughs> Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch movies with us. We are trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We will check you out soon. See you.